Hey, quick disclaimer, we're back in Greek mythology, so that means there are some mentions of adult themes as well as sexual assault. You can find more information in the episode post at mythpodcast.com. This week, on Myths and Legends, it's the mythical origin story of the city of Athens, perhaps the most famous Greek city-state that doesn't have shirtless Gerard Butler yelling at strangers and kicking them into pits. You'll see how the world's first election ended in disaster and how it led to multiple dragon kings, backstabbing, and, of course, bird people. On the Creature of the Week, you'll learn which helpful animals you should hit in the head with a hammer. Spoiler alert, it's none of them. This is Myths and Legends, episode 109, Home. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace. Have a dream or an idea? Maybe you want to start a podcast? Make it a reality with Squarespace. Creating an online presence is a crucial step, and Squarespace makes it easy. Customize as much or as little as you want. Use stunning templates, make a statement online without ever having to install, patch, or upgrade anything. Head to squarespace.com myths for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MYTHS to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. The city of Athens has endured for over 3,000 years. It was one of the most powerful Greek city-states, and it's still a major world capital to this day. It's the birthplace of democracy, the home of the Parthenon, and widely considered to be the cradle of Western civilization. Today, we're not really talking about the history of Athens, but the story of its royal family. We're going to start the story today with the first king of Athens putting the city up to a vote that would echo down through the ages, what they were going to call their new home, destined to become one of the most well-known cities in the world. Ah, the air was fresh, the people were out and about, it was election day. Cecrops, the king of the city, had decreed that he would allow the people one official patron god, and it would be selected by vote. And so today, all the men and women had to choose from one of two tablets to cast their vote, to name the patron god of their community. Two deities were still in the running towards becoming the city's next top god. And, naturally, the division between the voters was so stark, so close, that a simple yay or nay vote tipping the scale didn't suffice. It was too close. So it triggered a recount. So now the men and women of the city had a choice. Poseidon or Athena? Hmm. God of the sea and horses versus the goddess of wisdom and warfare. Both gods were campaigning hard for their position, too. Athena had honored the city with an olive tree, prized among the Greeks at that time. Poseidon broke a rock and made a saltwater well, which was also very useful. People stayed up that night watching the results pour in, and it was, once again, a very close call. It came down to a single vote, but it was decreed that Athena would become the patron goddess of the new city, and it would be called Athens. Poseidon, quite bent out of shape, scrapped his concession speech and stormed off in a huff, and then stormed back in, literally. The sky erupted. Oceans rose, and streams began to swell. Soon, a pop-up flood overtook the entire new city of Athens. Eventually, even Poseidon grew bored of harassing a city that rejected him. And soon, the floodwaters abated. That's when the men of Athens discovered something. In doing a head count, they realized that the women outnumbered the men. By one. One person. That was it. And Athena had won by one vote. With this new knowledge, they approached the king who decreed that, for the sake of their democracy, he had to undermine their democracy. And so Cecrops, the apparently half-dragon first king of Athens, stole the right to vote from the women of Athens. Sure that this one little change in the world's first democracy would definitely not lead to 6,000 years of misogyny. Nearly 20 years later, we catch up with Athena, 
running through the forest, followed closely by someone in hot pursuit. It had started a few hours earlier, but he wasn't letting up. Hephaestus, the smith god, had glanced at her once when she entered his workshop to request some weapons for Zeus. He smirked and swaggered toward the goddess, but she rolled her eyes. Nope, definitely not happening. He cocked an eyebrow, but didn't stop shuffling toward her. Now, the goddess of war had taken a vow of chastity, and she wasn't about to violate it with Hephaestus, this ugly, limping smith that also happened to be married to Aphrodite. So she took off into the forest. But so did Hephaestus. She was surprised by how fast the smith could move. And hours later, even the goddess began to tire. Eventually, as she stopped to rest, she heard a rustling in the trees. She gripped her spear and narrowed her eyes as her pursuer limped toward her. She was through running. If she had to kill a god to... Oh, oh, ew, okay. And he was done. As it turned out, Hephaestus was really into her. And he was all finished by the time he got halfway across the clearing. The smith god, completely red in the face, took off in the opposite direction at twice the speed he had chased Athena with all day. Athena, happy that this weird, gross, harrowing day was over, sat down by a fountain to catch her breath. Then, a hissing followed by cooing caught her attention. It was coming from the ground where Hephaestus had been standing, where his stuff had hit the ground, and it was now bubbling. Athena grimaced as she watched it take shape. Then, she felt pity. A couple days later, the three daughters of King Serops were sitting and talking in a field, when Athena, the patron goddess of their city, appeared before them with a box. She handed it to the daughters and told them never to open it. Wait, what? They objected. That seemed pretty cruel, giving people a box and then telling them never to open it. And also, what should they do with it? But Athena had disappeared, leaving them with a curious box thumping, hissing, and cooing in the field. Their ability to resist lasted ten whole minutes before Hersey, the eldest daughter, popped the lid of the box and screamed. Inside the box was what appeared to be a snake coiled around an infant. If they had been capable of taking a bit more time to look at it closely, and had not gone instantly insane, and thrown themselves off the Acropolis to their deaths, they would have seen that, much like their father, it was not a snake coiled around an infant, but a half-human, half-snake. Secrops, the king, was a man who was barely a man, and, like the child he found in a box after the tragic deaths of his daughters, he had a snake tail he used to slither around town. In addition to founding the city that became Athens, he instituted marriage, reading, writing, and burying the dead. This was so early in the grand scheme of things that, during the reign of Cecrops in Athens, the world experienced its first winter and nearly froze to death. But later Demeter would even things out and bring the world back on track with the four seasons. When Cecrops died, Cronus took over and reigned for about 10 years before he was deposed and killed by the king of Thermopylae. Seeing the only home he had ever known taken from him, Eric Thonios, the half-lizard baby in the box Athena had delivered, stood up, or whatever the equivalent was for a snake lower body, and took back his land. He killed the usurper, and the dragon kings once again ruled Athens. I guess it helps to be king, but the details of how the half-lizard Eric Thonios went about meeting his wife, let alone the mechanics of how they had four children, eludes me. Maybe it was a shape of water thing, not sure. Regardless, their children were human, and the reign of the dragon kings came to an end. Their first son, Pandion, met someone, likely because it was much easier not having a dragon tail, and had children of his own. Two of his children were daughters, Procne and Philomena. Procne married the king of Thrace, named Tereus, and Philomena really wanted to visit her older sister. Tereus was on a boat, just killing time. It was kind of annoying. He was the king of Thrace, but he still had to pick his sister-in-law up from Athens because his wife, Procne, just had to see her sister, Philomena. It was like having to pick a family member up at the airport, but the airport's three weeks away by boat. If the messenger they sent ahead of them hadn't died or been eaten by a giant or something, then Philomena should be wi- Oh. Oh, hello there. 
Philomena stood waiting at the docks, and Tarius didn't even notice the boat drifting the rest of the way into port. As he docked, he started laying on the charm, and what he thought was flirting on her part was really just the supernaturally beautiful Philomena being nice. I guess she didn't expect her brother-in-law to be hitting on her. Seems like a fair assumption. Tarius easily convinced King Pandion of Athens to let his daughter ride back to Thrace with him. The idea of Tarius being into his own sister-in-law, again, not at all being on anyone's radar. So Philomena boarded the boat with her brother-in-law, and the pair sailed north to Thrace. They made port on an island near the Thracian mainland when the news arrived. Procne, Philomena's sister, and Tarius's wife, was dead. Whether by centaur, as a hydra, or a small cut in her skin, I don't know, it's the ancient world, the queen was no more. Philomena wept and Tarius wailed. With tears running down his cheeks, Tarius cried out that he didn't know if he would ever be able to love again. <sighs> okay, he was ready to love again. Philomena and Tarius were each other's comfort in that difficult time. Tarius shared that he couldn't bear to go back to his capital. Not yet. There were too many things there that reminded him of Procne. Like the body of Procne. The pair went to mourn the woman they both loved in a small seaside villa. And, eventually, their closeness turned into something else. A love grew between the pair. And from sadness, they found happiness. The pair was married in a small, private ceremony. A few weeks later, Philomena was surprised that Tarius appeared to be moving stuff in. Hold up. She loved him, and she also wanted to be the queen, you know. It really felt like they were hiding here, far off away from anyone. She had a husband she was proud of, and she wanted to stand by his side in front of his people. It was difficult for her to say, but he needed to get over the death of Procne and return to his people. They needed their king. But at any mention of Procne, Tarius retreated inside himself. He withdrew and wouldn't speak to Philomena for days. Eventually, she learned not to bring up Procne or even Thrace. She would just have to be content with a life hidden away from anyone and everyone. That wasn't even the worst, though. The servants, though they obeyed her, reviled their new queen. They all but refused to call her queen, too. One afternoon, fed up with the servants constantly evading her and shooting her dirty looks, Philomena found a little old lady and cornered her demanding to know what her deal was. Why did they hate her? Why did they refuse to call her queen? The little old servant straightened up her tunic. She took a deep breath. She knew she could be punished for speaking to Philomena like this, let alone what she was about to say, but she had to say it. It was because Philomena wasn't the queen. The queen, the king's wife, a wonderful woman by the name of Procne, was still waiting for him to return in Thrace while Philomena kept the king here, and not only slept with her sister's husband, but demanded that the servants call her a queen. It would be pathetic if it wasn't so cruel. The servant looked up and saw Philomena crying. She expected to be, at best, beaten and fired. It was then that she realized that Philomena... Philomena didn't know. He must have told her that her sister was dead. The old woman took Philomena into her arms and comforted her. She told the girl that they had to keep this quiet. It was obvious that the husband she thought she knew didn't exist. Apparently, they didn't know what this man was capable of. Philomena heard the advice of the old woman and proceeded not to take it at all. She was a princess, the daughter of the king and the sister of a queen. No one, no matter how powerful, was allowed to do this to her. She stood and, ignoring the protest of the old woman, went to go find her husband. Tarius, the king, listened to it all, and sighed dramatically. Is this what she wanted? To fight? Had he not done anything and everything to keep her happy? Why was she coming at him with these lies? Philomena stood up. Stop it. Stop all of it. He wasn't going to turn this around on her. And if they were lies, then they should just go to the capital now. He didn't even need to go. She could go all by herself. You know what? 
She would be going regardless. She would leave tonight. He sighed again and grabbed her by the wrist. Why was she doing this? Couldn't she just stay here and be happy? She pulled her wrist away and shook her head. She wouldn't do this to her sister any longer. She would find Prockney and tell her everything. She would tell every king from here to create everything. Terius would live in shame before gods and men. Terius clenched his jaw. She just had to say that, didn't she? Okay. He let out a low whistle, and two guards came in the room. He pointed at Philomena, and they grabbed her shoulders, just as she tried to run. Terius walked over to the table and picked up a knife. He still loved Philomena, but he couldn't have her talking. She looked at him fiercely in the eye and told him to do it. She would rather die than stay his wife. He took a step back. No, 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 no. He wasn't going to kill her. He just couldn't have her talking. When she realized what he was thinking, she screamed and struggled against the two men holding her. Terius, her husband, grabbed the base of her tongue with one hand and cut it off with the other. Prockney rushed to the docks. She was so excited. Her husband was back, and her sister was with them. They must have run into storms or something, because the one-month trip had taken three. But they were back now. That was all that mattered. But wait, what was this? She broke into tears when she saw him at the docks. He was alone. Terius apologized profusely. He had done all that he could. But Philomena had gotten sick and died on the trip back. He was forced to give her a burial at sea to keep the sickness from spreading. Prockney burst into tears and Terius wept with her. The entire kingdom mourned for the queen's sister. After the tragedy, though, Prockney noticed that Terius began traveling a lot more. He was only gone for a few days at a time. But when he returned, he, he wouldn't look her in the eyes for like a week. Then, finally, something strange happened. While her husband was out, Prockney had a visitor, an elderly woman, that helped look after one of their villas. She wordlessly handed the queen some fabric and disappeared before she could ask any more questions. Okay, so remember, this was in the time before writing had traveled around the world, from its invention in Athens by a dragon king. Quick note, if you're ever taking an anthropology test and there's a question about the origin of written languages, try that answer out. I'm sure it's definitely correct. Well, it was the time before written languages, but it was a time when there was still magic in the world. Probably, I, I really don't know. But Prockney opened up the cloth the servant had brought her, and a scene unfolded itself, like a wizard newspaper. It was her sister on a ship, weeping, and there was a man who was clearly Terius. The pair embraced and wept together. The next scene was a seaside villa where they... they kissed... Then they did more than kiss. A lot more. All meticulously stitched into a blanket. Then, an image of Prockney. Philomena weeping and yelling and bleeding. Then locked in a room with only a loom to keep her occupied until Prockney recoiled as the image of Terius returned. Again and again. She looked up to demand to know who this came from. But the old lady was already gone. Prockney knew, though. She knew who this came from. And she knew where her sister was. The elderly woman who had delivered the cloth could barely hide her smirk as Prockney, her queen, strode into the villa. Terry had been by, announcing that he was going to be going away for a few months. He had been summoned overseas to meet with another king, having no idea that Prockney had called in a favor. With a word, the villa opened up for the queen. No one involved with the whole thing was really that thrilled with keeping Philomena there, and Prockney found her sister, bruised and huddled in a cell. As the two women rode back into the capital, Philomena recovered enough to shriek and try to communicate that they shouldn't be going this way. They needed to be going south, to the ports, to Athens. Prockney comforted her. They would. They just needed to do one thing first. Thank you.
Their revenge was equal parts horrifying and cliche, but that will be right after this. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. All right, now back to the show. A few months later, when Terius returned, Parkney was the first one to greet him with open arms and a smile. She told him to come inside. She had made a dinner for him. As he sat, he asked about Idis, their five-year-old son. She grinned and said he was around here. Somewhere, he would be by for dinner. Please, Terius. Have a seat and get started. Prockney had even given the servants the night off, and she would be happy to serve the king herself. As Terius finished the first heaping, meaty bowl of the stew, he noticed that his wife wasn't eating. He begged her to take a seat to join him, but she shook her head. I know, was all she said. He chuckled, then the smile disappeared from his face. It was at that moment that Philomena entered the room. Terius stiffened and stared at his wives. Prognate asked him if he was enjoying his soup, as Terius became increasingly aware that his son, Ides, had never come to dinner. Prognate nodded at Terius, and he looked down at his stew. His face went pale. Prognate had killed their son and served the boy to him for dinner. Okay, so this happens a lot in Greek mythology. I mean... Once is too many, but this is kind of a royal go-to revenge technique. I mean, Prockney and Philomena had no idea that, for hundreds of years, anytime someone wanted to get back at someone else, they would secretly feed their kids to them. The Greeks got a lot of mileage out of this child-eating thing, though it's pretty freshly horrifying each time it happens. Except for Terius. He was frozen in shock, yes, but only for a moment, before his vision went red. He was the son of Ares, the god of war. No one, no one did something like this to him, not even his own wife, or the other woman he had secretly and illegally married and hid. The woman stepped back in panic as he rose, shocked that he wasn't doubled over in horror and regret after eating itties. When they saw him reach for his axe, they ran. Philomena lost her footing first, and then Prockney went down with her. They slid in the mud and the rain down the embankment, and when they finally hit the bottom, splashing down in an even thicker mud, lightning struck and illuminated Terius looming on the hill above them, axe in hand. He bounded down after them, and was standing with his axe raised above his head, just as they managed to pick themselves up off the ground. There were no more words left for the three of them, Terius was going to kill the woman here, the only two that knew the extent of the terrible things he had done, the two who had killed his son. The woman knew they had been caught, that there was nothing else they could do. They couldn't get away fast enough, and so it had come down to their last option, to pray. Philomena grabbed Prockney's arm, and both women dropped to their knees. Terius gripped the axe tighter, finally, his crime would be hidden by the blood of the only two people anyone would ever believe. The woman looked up, winced, and prayed. Elsewhere, Zeus's pager went off. Oh my, now? Seriously? He said as he read the message. I have a date. What was that? Hera said from the next room. Um, uh... I have a great amount of work to do. Mm-hmm, Harris said through pursed lips as she went back to her crossword. Zeus thudded down into his computer chair, which was really difficult because he had already turned into a bull for his date. He pulled up the request, waving his hoof as that little rainbow wheel took way too long. He was supposed to leave like 10 minutes ago. Finally, the prayer loaded and... 
Okay, that was too much reading. A whole backstory about two wronged sisters or something, and a guy that was going to kill them, but they had also killed a kid, so... Ish. Okay, what was a good blessing slash punishment for everyone? He didn't have time for this. What about... Birds. We'll turn them all into birds. That made sense, right? They'll just fly around forever singing and stuff, but they're also gross birds. Didn't matter, that's what he's doing. He put the order in, hit command option eject, and slipped back out of the room to meet up with his date. Slash victim. Back on Earth, the axe thudded into the mud as three birds hovered, flapping in the rain. Progny had been changed into a nightingale, a bird with a beautifully sad song, always mourning for her son. Philomena turned into a swallow, which, due to her cut tongue, could only twitter, but never sing. But there was a silver lining. Eventually, she would get 280 characters per tweet. Terius was changed into a hoopoe, probably the cutest bird out of the three with a long beak and a big crown. And that's what happened to Procne, Philomena, and Terius. They turned into birds, and they were the first of their kinds. It's kind of a strange and frustrating deus ex birdia ending. Anyway, back in Athens, Procne and Philomena had a brother named Erechtheus, not to be confused with his grandpa, Erechthonius, or his grandson, Erechtheus. Because when they were naming these kings, there was a long-standing conspiracy to make it really hard to follow in podcast format. Anyway, Erechtheus had a much easier life than his sisters, did not turn into a bird, and had children of his own. As it turns out, the women of the royal family of Athens had it rough. One such case would be one of Erechtheus' daughters, named Porchris. She was walking in a field with her husband one morning, when he just disappeared. He came back a few weeks later, and did he have a story to tell? Aurora, the personification of the Don herself, was into him. But, unlike nearly every male in Greek mythology, Cephalus, the husband, was a good guy. Mostly. He didn't cheat on his wife. He had told the beautiful Aurora that he would never be with her. But, there was one carefully timed sentence. Aurora told the young man, that she hoped Porchris, his wife, had stayed as faithful when her time of temptation had come. Cephalus didn't mention the sentence when he was recounting his story, and, over the next year, his doubt only grew. Soon, he couldn't take it, and left. He went to Aurora, but again, he told the goddess of the dawn that he was faithful to his wife. <laughs> he just had to know that she was going to be faithful to him. Aurora, seeing that this marriage was circling the drain, agreed to help out the forlorn king. She completely disguised him, and he went back home. At first, Porchris found the stranger who hung around their kingdom to be annoying, and a little creepy, but as she got to know him, she found that she actually started to kind of like him. The company was nice, yeah, and there was something about him that reminded her of her husband, in that everything about him but his looks reminded her of her husband. She began to see more and more of him, until one day, when he asked her something, something that would change their relationship forever. Hey, want to cheat on your husband with me? That threw things into sharp contrast, and she pushed him away, disgusted. Cephalus, apparently not seeing the need to try any different line or be subtle at all, kept asking, and Borkris kept turning him down. She never said yes, but the goalpost of Cephalus's paranoid mind shifted. And, one day, when she refused him, but, and I kid you not, took a few seconds longer in refusing him than normal, he pulled off the disguise and screamed that she had betrayed him. And there was no violence, no yelling. She simply left, and as soon as she was out of the city, Cephalus had realized how deeply he had been played by the gods. So, he went after her. It wasn't dramatic. She didn't take him back immediately but their relationship could be mended. And he worked at it. Eventually, she forgave him for weeks of deception, for not trusting her to be faithful. They lived as a happy couple together for a long time after that, until he accidentally killed her in a hunting accident years later, because no one in Greek mythology can have a happy ending ever. 
If you think the world is dangerous today, well, another case is poor Chris's sister, Erthia, who was out walking one morning when the wind took her. The two children she bore the wind were two of the Argonauts, who later went on a quest for the Golden Fleece. And there's one more story we're going to talk about today, that of poor Chris and Erthia's other sister, a woman by the name of Creusa. The young girl was gathering flowers on the cliff. She really had to beg her mom to let her go this far. They knew the foothills were safe, and besides, Creusa was going to be 13 next month. She was going to be a woman of marrying age for the ancient Greek world. She told her mom she should be able to gather flowers in the hills outside of Athens, her home. As the soft autumn wind blew, though, she became aware of just how big, how unknown, her world was. It was then that she realized that she couldn't hear her mom singing anymore. She had gone too far. She turned to head back, and the wind blew. It caught her basket, and her flowers danced in the wind. She chased after them, and found that the cliff stopped them. Well, most of them. She stooped to refill her basket, but noticed the other blossoms had entered a cave that stretched deep into the darkness of the cliff. As she looked down, she decided that no flower was worth that. She turned and bumped into him. There was a man there, more than a man. She had always wondered what the gods looked like. But as she looked on Apollo, she knew. He was magnificent and beautiful and terrifying. She had heard the stories. She was alone in the wilderness. Her mother was out of earshot. She threw down the flowers, broke left, and ran for it. But he caught her arm. She screamed and kicked at him, but with a completely impassive gaze, he pulled her closer. She dug him with her heels and even clawed at the ground until her fingers bled, but the god was unrelenting. Apollo dragged her into the darkness of the cave, and Creusa's screams died out, long before they would ever reach her mother, humming gently in the field. Creusa huddled in the light of the embers. She had heard the search party again, so she couldn't relight the fire until they were gone. She looked on the stale scraps of bread she had left and hoped that she would have the baby soon. She didn't pray, though. She would never pray again. She came home weeping and disheveled that night. Her parents had yelled at her for staying out that late, and they thought the weeping was because she was upset about them yelling. She knew within weeks that she was with child. His child. Telling anyone was out of the question. No one would believe her if she became pregnant and said God did it. Best case, they would disown her. Worst case, they would kill her and the child. Creusa knew she had a few months until she started showing, but she was going to survive. Now, nine months pregnant, the food she had stockpiled in the early months was almost gone. She had stayed as long as she could, until just before the whisper started. Then, she went to that cave, the cave where the baby had been conceived, to give birth. It finally happened a few days later. Bracing her feet on the rocks over a pile of straw, she pushed. I can't imagine the strength it took not only to give birth to a baby by yourself, but to do so alone in a cave. Creusa was a survivor. When the baby was born, she summoned what strength she could and severed the umbilical cord with a piece of flint she had brought for just that reason. Then, sleep took her. She awoke hours later to a baby screaming, the hay having dried to his body. She stooped down and picked the hay off of him, wrapping the shivering baby in her veil and hood. She sighed. The strength it took to give birth was nothing compared to what Creusa willed herself to do next. She set the baby down. She let the baby cry as she struggled to her feet and left the cave. They could both be put to death if she returned with him and she didn't spend four months living on stale, moldy bread in a place where she was raped to lose her nerve now. She tried to put it out of her mind, but she heard the baby's cry long after she was back in Athens. She heard the baby's cries as the years passed, and her father arranged a marriage for her. She heard the baby's cries every time she passed by those hills. So, she stopped passing by those hills. 
She heard the baby's cries as she and her husband struggled to conceive a child of their own. Carusa had returned to the cave to bury her child a few weeks after she had given birth. Years ago, she returned expecting the worst, but the baby was gone. The wild animals weren't to blame. There wasn't any blood, and her cloak and veil were gone too. Someone had taken him. Somewhere out there, she had a son. Some years later, Creusa and her husband, Zuthus, were making the trek that heroes and villains, demigods and mortals, kings and paupers would make over many hundreds of years. They were going to speak to the Oracle at Delphi. Now, for those of you just jumping into this podcast, the Delphic Oracle was, well, an oracle, but it was the Oracle of Ancient Greece. Run by priestesses, they communicated with an Olympian to hear conveniently convoluted prophecies. This would be a hard day for Creusa because the Olympian that handed down the destinies was, of course, Apollo. It was especially bad because Creusa already knew the answer to the reason why they were there. It was his fault. They were there because, after years of trying, they were childless. She had hidden the baby from the world, but, unfortunately, she couldn't hide him from herself. She knew she could have children, and she hoped the oracle would give him some better news. Creusa waited outside while her husband did the ritual and heard from the oracle. That was when an arrow flew by her. She spun around and saw a slave. She approached the man and, half out of curiosity, half out of wanting to get her mind off of being so close to Apollo, she asked him why he was shooting arrows all over the place. He put the bow on his back and said it was his job to keep the temple clean. And, as it turned out, it was much easier to just kill the birds than to constantly be cleaning up their droppings. He was pretty sure Apollo was cool with that, but with being the god of archery and all, he was so great. Creusa grimaced. Yeah, no, he wasn't, but that's cool. The young man with the bow and arrow stopped. What's your deal? Creusa turned to the young man. Her deal was that she, she meant her friend, was raped by Apollo at a young age. It had almost cost her everything, too. And where was the Olympian when it was time to give birth? He abandoned her. So no, he wasn't so great. The young man, named Ion, put his hand to his mouth and said he had no idea. He was so sorry that Creus's friend was such a liar. Apollo would never do something like that. Ion knew firsthand. Apollo had brought him to the temple himself when he was just an infant. Creus was about to figuratively and maybe a little literally, tear this kid's head off. When Zuthus came barreling out of the temple and right into Ion. When the two men stood, Zuthus looked into Ion's eyes. Tears were streaming from his own. Creusa flew to her husband's side and asked if he was hurt. But he shook his head. He had never been happier. He had just found his son. Ion gasped. Daddy! Zuthus sat everyone down and explained it. The oracle had said his son was here, and he would run into him as soon as he left the temple. He had run into Ion, so Ion was his son. Creusa looked confused. Whoa, he needed to back up a bit. Zuthus had a son? Zuthus nodded. Well, he just learned that he did, and it made sense in his youth before he met Creusa. And he actually just wanted to double back and mentally underline that particular point, that it was long before he met Creusa, he used to go to fun parties, where he would make several short-term acquaintances, sometimes many in one night. Anyway, long story short, one of them dropped young Ion here for Zuthus to discover him years later. <sighs> wow, Apollo was so great. Creusa knew what this was, though. The archer god was still finding ways to ruin her life. She had managed to heal, to find a husband she loved and who loved her, and now that was being taken away from her too. If the son from one of her husband's hazy youth hookups had just happened to reappear decades later, then the mother was on the way. Creusa was sure of it. She had already given him a son, when Creusa could not. Creusa would be cast out, and it was all thanks to Apollo. She sighed. Excellent. Just great. She was going to have to kill this kid now. 
Grace is sat with her entourage of servants and her one elderly male tutor when they all agreed. This was fishy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They understood that she trusted and loved her husband. But was she sure that, you know, he wasn't lying? He could have easily conceived this kid out of wedlock, taken him to the temple himself, and then made up the prophecy. Chris admitted that that was a bit of a stretch. She liked where everyone's head was. Still, the fact that her husband whose heirs had the rights to the throne of Athens after Cruz's father died, had a son that wasn't hers was too much. She had to kill this kid, and she knew how she was going to do it too. Gorgon blood. Gorgons like Medusa? The tutor piped up. Crusa nodded. Yeah, but let's not say that. Athena isn't too crazy about the M-word. Back when the Olympians fought the Giants, episode 92 for the curious, they fought a Gorgon too. And Athena, when she dropped Creus's great-grandpa off with the daughters of the Athenian king, had two vials with a drop of blood in each. One heals, one kills. It was a weird gift that her snake-grandpas and her dad passed down in the family. She always had them on her wrist and just had to be really sure to not mix up the labels. She handed the bracelet to a servant, dropped the poison blood into his drink. Then, all her problems would be solved and she wouldn't look like she had poisoned him. Win-win except for him. As the servants rushed off with the bracelet, Crusa smiled for the first time in days. She was going to ensure that her descendants sat on the throne and thwarted Apollo. It was a good day. It was a terrible day, Crusa thought as the arrows whizzed by her and Ion shouted behind her, she had just been caught trying to poison the boy. Was that really such a crime? It was. A bad one, as it turned out. One that prompted immediate vengeance. This was all Apollo's fault again. He didn't want the kid to die. So at the feast, a dove flew down and took one sip from his wine in the moments before he got it. I guess he was totally cool with bird backwash, because as he raised the glass to his lips, he saw the dead dove there on the table. It only took one servant looking a little nervous and the torturing of said servant to get a confession that led right to Creusa. The elders of the city were all there and they voted immediately that Creusa should die, that she should be thrown from a nearby cliff for trying to murder someone dedicated to a god in the god's own temple. She fled and narrowly escaped, still hiding in the city. But she knew the truth. She could never flee not if an Olympian wanted her dead. <sighs> there was one thing left to do. Creusa knelt before the altar of Apollo, cringing as she did it, but knowing that this was the only way to save her life. The doors thudded open behind her, and Ion and the elders of the city demanded to know what she was doing. She stood and said that while they were welcome to kill her, the gods didn't take well to having people killed while they were praying to them. And she would now never leave Apollo's altar. She was now, now a priestess of Apollo, which was just so great. Ion approached her, when one of the priestesses pulled him aside. It was one of the older women who had practically raised him. She whispered in his ear that he couldn't be involved in this. In killing the woman at the altar, he needed to go back to Athens Pure and, ooh, okay, wait, incoming. Apollo had just apparently shot her a prophecy. She was finally able to give something to Ion. She pulled him into another room, away from the confrontation at the altar, and showed him something. They were the clothes that he was wearing when he was first brought to them. All those years ago, he had found his father today, and the priestess had a feeling that he would soon find his mother, too. Ion couldn't believe it. First his dad, then his mom. Creusa trying to murder him was kind of a happy accident, too. With her out of the way, maybe Ion's biological mother could get back together with his father. Maybe he could have a family. He thanked the priestess and praised Apollo 
Since his birth, the just and wonderful God had been watching out for him. He was in awe of not just how great the Olympian was, but how good. He didn't even care that Creus and the soldiers were still shouting at each other at the altar when he returned. Then, the room grew silent. Ion looked up from the package the priests had given him to see Creus staring at him, mouth agape, a tear streaking down her cheek. She looked at the veil, the hood, the blood that had dried so many years ago. She ran to her son and embraced him like she was never able to do on the day of his birth. Ion had a hard time with the news. He refused to believe it at first, but Creus had described the hood and the veil in detail before she even looked at it all. It was obvious. She was his mother. Ion knew what that meant, though. The God that he had served his whole life. The one that had saved him. The one that guided people with countless prophecies. Was a rapist. A horrible, horrible monster who would take advantage of his 13-year-old mother and then abandon her to give birth alone. He sighed, and in the end, he refused to believe it. And Carusa had understood. No one had been betrayed more by a god than her. Well, actually, countless young women were pretty much in the same situation, unfortunately. But she had been hurt more than Ion. She knew he would come around. He would heal, and when he did, he would have a family and a throne waiting for him in Athens. It was then that both mother and son sat shocked to silence by a visitor. Not Apollo. The play by Euripides actually states that he didn't want to show up because they would blame him for all this. Nope. This was their city's namesake, Athena. She said that Apollo wasn't a trickster and, looking in the direction of Olympus, said that he really shouldn't try. He had attempted to quietly put Ion back with his mother by tricking Zeuthus, which would have gone really well if not for everyone almost dying. Ion stooped and nodded. Okay. He accepted that Creosa was his mother. He had known it was true. He just didn't want to believe because of what it meant about Apollo, the god to which he had dedicated his whole life. Creosa was the next to speak. She thanked Athena and thanked Apollo. She would never love the god, but she could forgive him. He had saved her son and returned him to her. She could let go of her hatred for him. Athena smiled as the mother embraced her long-lost son, and the goddess disappeared in a flash, but then reappeared. Oh, uh, one last thing. Zeuthus missed this all, and has absolutely no idea about Ion's true parentage. So, maybe let him believe that Ion is his biological son? It's really just easier that way. With that, Athena disappeared again, and Zeuthus walked in a few minutes later, pointing over his shoulder as he greeted his wife and son. He was just down getting a hot pretzel in town, but it looked like something involving arrows and poisoned wine was going on up at the temple. Ion and Creusa smiled and shrugged. They had no idea, but the family should head out. Athens, home, was waiting. According to some sources, Ion became king after Erechtheus died, and, as such, it was only a generation or so removed from the first Athenian king we met on this podcast, Aegeus, and his long-lost son, Theseus. According to legend, Theseus, despite still being called the king of Athens, was the one to bring democracy as a form of government to the city that invented it. I mean, historically he didn't, it was like centuries later, but it's a nice thought. The last story today came from a play by Euripides called Ion. We'll revisit his work later, much later, when a guy named Agamemnon comes home from the Trojan War to, somehow, even more danger. I read that this play, Ion, was popular, and it kind of shows a waning devotion to the Olympians by how clearly it paints Apollo in a bad, though extremely accurate, but still bad, light and the faith of his devotee is shown to be entirely misplaced. It's one of the few stories in Greek mythology that truly investigates the psychological consequences for a woman that was attacked by one of the gods, a ridiculously common occurrence in mythology. That's it for this week, and I want to say thanks to the Moragu, Johnny Cano, Clarabelle1588, Sawyer Westbrook, 
Evil Ken Weevil, Rachel T88, Ty Ty 055, Lorini Ballerini, Thomas Adam Mark Humphreys, The Prazo, Syndicate, Penguin Number Three. Don't know what happened to Penguins Number One and Two, but maybe they'll write a review eventually. Friends of the Fairy Man and May Loves Dogs for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for taking the time to write a review. I really appreciate it, and it does help the show. And if you're Penguin 1 or 2 and want to write a review, you can find the show at apple.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of one teaspoon of research-grade human saliva, you can get extra episodes, source-back ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that you don't already have on you. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the stray cow from Wales. It has an actual name that I can't begin to approach the pronunciation of, so it's in the show notes if you want to look this one up. Lynn Barfog was a lucky Welshman. He had attracted the eye of one of the fairy creatures. Well, his bull had, which was really the best way to attract the eye of the fairy creatures. All the benefit, none of the confusing issues of dealing with magical creature romance. And Lynn did get the benefit. The fairy cow birthed beautiful calves and gave the most delicious milk, cheese, and butter. Lynn's goods sold very well, and his wealth and reputation was solely because this magical fairy cow happened to find one of his bulls attractive. So, of course, when she got old and became less and less profitable, he decided to kill her. Even when fattening her up, she was magnificent. She was, apparently, the fattest cow that ever existed. And finally, the day came when she was to die. People came from miles around to see the guy who was stupid enough to kill his magical fairy cow and they were not disappointed. It seems like there are better ways to kill a cow than bludgeoning it to death, but if there were, apparently Lynn Barfog didn't know them. He raised the hammer above his head, and that's as far as he got. His right arm was immediately paralyzed, and the hammer fell to the ground. The crowd, not at all disappointed that this whole thing was going down exactly as they thought it would, turned to see a woman in green, standing on the water of a nearby lake, telling the cows to arise and come home. And the cows came home. One by one, all the fairy cow's children walked into the lake. The incredibly large fairy cow was last. And it was by then that the farmer's arm had recovered. He grabbed the fairy cow's lead and dug his heels in. But she was supernaturally strong and just ambled toward the water. All of her children had walked into the water and back to the fairy world. Limbarfog's quite literal cash cow was leaving him and he couldn't let that happen. He yelled and pulled and swore, but it continued to drag him into the water. He was, perhaps, more stubborn than the cow, and he didn't let go. The townspeople didn't know if he was drowned at the bottom of the lake or taken to the fairy realm, but he never returned. So, yeah, if a fairy cow stops by and wants to give you good stuff, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, or don't hit a fairy cow in the head with a hammer. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more music in the show notes. And today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>